Welcome to Season 6 of Business Book Talk. Every week, we have a business book author talk about their book and discover why they wrote it. The conversations are casual in tone, but we try and dig a bit deeper into the subject of the book and discover the author's background and their core ideas. I'm sure you'll like this week's book, so let's get started. Hey, everybody, it's Bob again, and I've got the book, The Peril of Thyself, The Spectacular Demise of Two Firms, and I've got Mark Moserson with me today. Mark, thanks for coming on the show. Well, thank you, Bob. Thanks for having me. So this is interesting. You know, we, we have, I would say, 99.9% of our books are business books, uh, and that's obvious since it's a business book show, but your book is different. It, it's more of um, a dramatic uh, novel, uh, page turner, as they would say, about business. Uh, it's a slightly different way of getting a point across. And, and I wanted to ask you, why did you feel that this was a really good medium compared to writing your standard book of, you know, here's 20 tips? Well, you know, the inspiration for the book was uh, my observations from my management consulting career uh, about leadership and what's important in a good leader, not from a standpoint of a leader's technical skills, but more about the type of person who's in a leadership role. And I, my belief was that a business book shouldn't be 300 pages around four or five points. So what I wanted to do was to write a very dramatic novel that would entertain, uh, that would you know engage the reader, any reader who would probably have some exposure to business or be in business themselves. And then at the end, through an epilogue, write a four or five page uh, summary of some of the leadership lessons that I've learned over the years and draw the parallels to the book. And that was really the, the, uh, the hypothesis or the thesis I had for writing the book. And for me, I think from folks who, who have read the book, uh, they, they, they give me some very good feedback and they also identify with the point that hey, Mark, you know, you're right. I really don't like reading business books when they could be basically a short story. And so I'm, I'm, I think my approach has been uh, validated to this point. You know, it's interesting. Uh, I remember years ago reading a bunch of sci-fi books, and it was hard sci-fi. Um, and you would read the book, and then at the end, the last third of the book was actually a thesis about why what you just read is theoretically possible. And it, it blew my mind because you would say, wow, that's a great story. So well, what's this? And then you start reading and say, wow, this is amazing. I had no idea. So yeah, I, I think it's, it's um, using story to get a point across and involving emotions and getting people to live the lives of the people that are in the book. And then after it, let's you know take away all that life stuff and say, what actually went on here and is this happening in your workplace or is it potentially going to happen to you? So I think it's a brilliant way of getting a point across. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that uh, an interesting way to actually read the book uh, for those who are now familiar with the content and the approach is maybe even read the epilogue first to get an idea of what are some of the key uh, points I'm trying to make and then go go ahead and you know start the story. Um, you, that might be, you know, I didn't really think about that when I was writing it, but I think as you, uh, as you start to talk to people about the book and have these kinds of conversations for sure, it, it's certainly an option to me that I think makes, uh, makes good sense for the reader. Yeah. I mean, the other way of doing it is like read two or three chapters and then go jump to the, 
uh, to, the, to the end and then like read and say, oh, hang on. I'm going to have to reread those 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 chapters again because now I'm I, my perspectives has been shifted and I'm going to get different I'm going to get different knowledge out of it. So now you're uh, you've got a bit of a background in writing. You did that when you were in, in university. Have you always loved writing? When did you decide that you really really enjoy writing? It, it probably in college. Uh, I was a managing editor of a daily paper and uh, I you know before coming to college I didn't write very much at all and uh, as I took on the role in the newspaper I just loved it and after college after I started my career in consulting and and went along I always had this objective that someday I would sit down and 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 write a novel and it was something that uh, was one of those goals that you have in life that you keep putting off for good reason jobs jobs strenuous you know a lot of family commitments things like that but I got to the point where I just said, you know, if I'm going to do it, I just got to sit down and do it. And more than anything, probably what was the motivation for getting this done was believed in the story. And when you have passion for the story you're writing about, uh, all of a sudden you find the time. And that's what happened here. And uh, that's what led to the uh, book getting getting written. So on a part-time level, just to to total candor, uh, I started the book in March of 2012, and uh, it took me to the end of 2015 to get it uh, released to the market. So it was it was a long-term project. Yeah, I mean, I I was working in the in the publishing industry uh, way back in the day, and uh, the process was pretty grueling for for writers. Right, they would write it, they bring in their manuscript, or, or the editor would read it, and then he would get back with the guy and say, "Great, this is fantastic. I love the book. Completely rewrite it." And you're like, what? Yes, oh, you thank know. you very much. Yeah, yeah the, the order's wrong. You know, don't mind all the red marks, but, you know, can you make those 4,000 corrections? But it was all part of the process. And, and uh, these days, because of self-publishing, the, a lot of people don't, you know, they don't have um, the time or, or understand that that's a critical, important part of creating a book is, you know, when you're writing it for yourself and, and it's coming out, a lot of it is is you're just dumping knowledge and then taking that first draft or maybe even second draft and crafting it in such a way so it has flow, that the chapters are put in an interesting order so it drives the person forward in the book. I mean, that's a completely different headspace. Did you notice that when you started editing the book? Yes. You know, it was interesting. The publisher gave me a lot of feedback around the fact that uh, – the book flowed very well. Uh, I think there was the only uh, the only place where I think that there was a rough point was I think at the beginning, where I had to set the backdrop of what was going on in the business environment at the time post Enron, and we worked really hard to kind of make that crisp and short, so that we wouldn't lose the, the reader in the detail. But I think the editing process, uh, for a whole set of reasons. Uh, partly because this was inspired by uh, truth and 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 all that, I had uh, not only editorial reviews, I had legal reviews, and and obviously that took uh, that also took a long time. And um, I got to the first draft in in quite can in uh, full disclosure in about two years, May of 2014. So you can see it took another you know 18 months after that uh, before it was released to the market. Yeah, it, it you know a lot of people are shocked when they find out what a writer goes through to basically. It's like having a baby. Uh, it's like having a few babies. 
<laughs> and, and for me as a first-time author, uh, one of the big learnings uh, as I've gone through this is that there are three phases to getting a book to market. There's writing it, there's publishing it, and then there's marketing it, marketing the book. And, and I would say, having gone through it now for the first time, I, I think writing it is actually the easiest part. Um, and and it's, it's learning the publishing side and the marketing side that that for me proved to be and probably other first authors first time authors as well very challenging oh yeah well you know what it, it, it's it's interesting because i run into this with clients all the time you know they'll they'll have their established business and they're doing their thing and then they say oh we're going to get into social media and we're going to start writing blogs or we're going to uh do a podcast or whatever and i say okay just so you realize that this is yet another product and you will have to spend uh, time and energy and budget to promote that to get people exposed to it. So just because you write something or, or, or create a podcast or what, there's a huge back end and it's perpetual promotion that a lot of times may not be what you expected. And, and you're right, it's the writing of the book is the fun part. It's when you're getting down to the nitty gritty and realizing, oh, wow, this, uh, this is a big monster I've created for myself. Absolutely. I, I certainly learned that. <laughs> <laughs> do, do you think you'll write a second book? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I have ideas in my mind. I think the next one is going to be a political fiction. And I think the third one, I already have ideas for um, uh, one of the things that I have in my life is my, my oldest son has Asperger's syndrome. And what I want to do is I want to write a book uh, to talk about Asperger's syndrome and, and use him as the central character so that people really kind of get an understanding of what that's all about. And uh, I think that uh, those, so those two topics, again, uh, in the political fiction, quite frankly, uh, without going too much into my political beliefs, is, is about the issue of uh, gun control. And so those two uh, issues, quite frankly, are, are, are issues that I'm passionate about and have, and have some experience with and definitely want to uh, pursue it in terms of a book. The thing about passion, if somebody's passionate about, um, I think I have the right to own a gun and I feel that I have the right to do X or whatever, um, a lot of times the, the, the concept of, of doing a logical argument or a debate or, or something like a classic business book is like do one, do two, do three, goes right by and they haven't been given the emotional information and, and, and ammunition to be able to step away from their beliefs and then say, well, okay, um, this is different. This is maybe something I should think about. Um, you may not change them 100%, but at least if you can get them thinking a little bit about it, that's an amazing, amazing achievement. So, uh, yeah, I think uh, writing novels and, and using emotion and storyline is a very, very powerful way to get points across. I, I agree, and I think the, the approach to book number two, book number three, uh, in my mind, I think will be very similar to book number one in terms of the, the storyline to really kind of draw the reader in, um, uh, you know, have them actually, you know, live in the characters' um, clothes a little bit just so that they understand what's going on. And then, you know, make the arguments um, about the issue at hand uh, at the end. Hmm. Interesting. Now, for your, your, your son has Asperger's. I would like to sit down and, and define that a little bit because I think there's a lot of misinformation around that. Uh... It's a condition. Yeah, it's definitely a condition. It's a series of traits 
that don't manifest themselves uh, equivalently uh, in in patients who are inflicted. And the traits, meaning it, it's an uneven disease in terms of what these patients go through, but they, they, there are issues around the uh, inability to uh, receive social cues to kind of understand how to react to various stimuli in their environment. Uh, they tend to perseverate. They tend to have challenges with hand-eye coordination. They, they tend to have uh, attention deficit types of challenges. And there are a handful of others. So this is something that is diagnosed uh, very early in a child's development, uh, usually between the ages of uh, two and three. And um, it's, it's something that, you know, to uh, address, you know, for, for a child, it's, it's, a, it's a combination of therapy, special schooling, uh, medication. And over time, the, there's a lot of learned skill that a child goes through as they develop if, if handled in the right way. And, uh, you know, we're convinced that many folks with these con this, this, this condition can go off and live very, uh, you know, very normal, productive lives. And in my, my son's case, who, who is not, he's now 25, he's a junior in college and, and doing fine working, um, and uh, we have him on a good track. Yeah, it, it's, uh, you know, I'm, I'm heavily dyslexic, and, and part of my reality is that um, by being labeled, it, it ends up being very difficult to, to work outside of that label and, and having belief in, like, actually, I am allowed to write. You know, it's just like, because I'm dyslexic, for many, many years I never wrote or I felt I had no right to, to write. And I'm in the communication industry, which is crazy. Right. <laughs> but now that I do write a lot more, the way I, I write and, and the amount of effort and energy and, and brain power I put into it is far, far higher than anybody that I ever hire as a writer. And I find them very lazy and, and frustrating. It's like, why aren't you trying harder as writing? Because, because it's easy for you, you're lazy at writing. And you're you're basically a, a, an inferior writer. Now I might not know how to spell, but my writing structure and the way I think about it and the flow and all that technical stuff is very hardcore. And I'm curious with with somebody um, with something like Asperger's, do you feel that a lot of times they they tend to be so intelligent that the reason that they have uh, a lot of their mannerisms is because of the frustration of the people that they're dealing with just don't understand the reality that they're in and the the amazing amount of energy and time that they're spending just uh, doing what they do and, and not being appreciated for it. Well, I think in your case where what you experienced led to a level of discipline uh, that I guess uh, became inherent in the way you approached writing. I think with uh, my son and others, um, you know, what they go through uh, allows them to develop uh, uh, a lot of defense mechanisms that we don't ordinarily have to develop if we're mainstream folks to just kind of get through the day. And as a result, it, it just uh, sharpens their sensitivity, uh, you know, in certain ways. Um, you know, a, a good, for instance, is he's very... Um, visual and he sees things that are going on around him uh, so much better than anyone else in the family. Uh, so we, we were always amazed. Uh, he also has this special skill that 
<laughs> we, we, that came, that emerged when he was a kid around the notion of um, uh, being able to tell anybody when their birthday is three or four years from now in terms of what day of the week. Uh, that was just, uh, you know, so he just has a way of processing information. So, and the way he processes is part of his issue, but it's also part of his strength in, in a way. Getting back to management and business and stuff like that, I think that is one of the things that HR departments aren't really getting is that you can't do um, traditional HR anymore. You've got to look at each individual for what their specialty is, what is their uh, gift for, for left, uh, lack of a better word, and and regardless if they're labeled with any particular ailment or mental condition, it that's irrelevant. It's like if you need a specific a specific problem solved, there are people that are going to be amazing at doing that. And uh, one of one of the major problems that's going on right now in in North America is by trying to streamline. Uh, stuff like HR and, and, and acquisition of talent, uh, that a lot of the talentless out there that they really desperately need to be talking to are being algorithmed out of the equation. Uh, and I think you got to kind of get back to, to if you're in a management position, and we're going to get to the book in a second, but really the, the dilemma or, or, of growing your business and looking for your doppelganger because I call it, basically call it the doppelganger for every single manager that exists is desperately looking for a doppelganger and their HR department is desperately using systems to make guarantee that they will never see their doppelganger. So, so yeah, the ability for a manager to uh, understand that their responsibility is uh, to build a company uh, as best they can, but the more that they rely on pre-existing systems, the harder it will be to make a company that they truly believe in in the future. No, I agree, and I think that um, what you see more of now is whether it be uh, Myers Briggs or uh, Insights or any of these, I call them uh, diagnostic personality diagnostic uh, exams or processes is there's more of those out there now so that people understand more about how they are wired uh, and how they think and how they approach problems, how they need to be motivated. And I think that information obviously is very beneficial to the managers that they work for and the, and the colleagues that they work with. Uh, so the, there's more of that. I think there's a growing sensitivity to that, at least what I see. Um, and interestingly in the book, I think a lot of what the book is about is the fact that when organizations choose leaders, they're often locking and loading on a person's technical attributes or where they've been before. They're not necessarily you know, zeroing in on the type of individual that, that they're considering, how that person makes decisions, how that person maintains their values under stress, how that person is willing to empower, you know, uh, and I think that uh, many, uh, uh, when you take a look at a lot of the failed business situations today, uh, a lot of those failures are linked, not necessarily to a technical failing, but more of a personal failing. I mean, if you think of the Enrons and the uh, oh, and the MCIs year ago, years ago, and all those all those companies that uh, 
that uh, eventually went under. A lot of it was uh, the personal missteps of the uh, of the leaders involved that, that that caused the problems. One of the things I think is it's incredibly difficult for for uh, a the person in, in a managerial position is to keep a sense of the reality of the situation. I mean, if you're in a super successful organization and every day's a challenge and everything's rah rah and boom, we're making all this money and oh my God, it's this is amazing. You, as a human, I don't think we're ready for that type of stimuli and the ability to keep a moral compass and, and, uh, keep your ethics in line becomes more and more and more difficult as uh, your reality is morphed further and further away from reality that you would consider normal and then you're kind of living the dream. I mean, that's a classic, oh, I'm living the dream. It's because we are unable as human beings to actually grasp where we are in the reality of the situation. Now, that sounds pretty esoteric and airy-fairy, but I think that is a huge dilemma for a lot of uh, managers is the ability to get over success, get over being a CEO, get over your label, and get back to your core being. Right. I mean, uh, and I think that uh, what you're referring to is, you know, the, the managers maybe kind of personalizing the performance of the company too much on them. And realizing that organizations of any significant size are really dependent on on other individuals in the organization helping to kind of make the company successful. And it's t- and you're right. Sometimes things go so well, it's tough to remember that. And I've seen situations where you know the stock is going crazy. Everybody thinks that uh, uh, they're the best in the world, and uh, anything they say is absolutely right as a result. And and it, it just creates a very, very different type of environment. And then all of a sudden it just goes the other way and then they don't know what to do. And it, it, it's my view is that it, it's the tough situations where uh, a leader's values are, are really tested. And if you think back to you know the one situation that I, I remember very, very well was uh, uh, J&J back in 1986 when they had the Tylenol failure. Uh, and James Burke, uh, the CEO of J&J, got, you know, was straight up, uh, got out there and said, we are responsible for this problem and we're going to do everything we can to fix it and we're not, we're not running away. Uh, we're, we're taking steps. We're going to be very honest with you about what we find and what we're going to do about it. And, and I think as a result, and he was dealing with just a major crisis, he wasn't hiding and, and I think he did a really nice job and was lauded after the fact for for being as upfront as he was. And there are other leaders like that. You know, I think uh, Mary Para, I mentioned her in the book a little bit about what she did when she took over GM and, and confronted some of their challenges on the recalls and the like. Um, all that is, um, you know, those are the kinds of attributes that I think we're looking for, you know, in leaders uh, to, to be able to keep their perspective and understand how to have some constancy uh, in their value set when things are going well as well as when things are not going well. Well, you, you used a key word there, confront. And, uh, you know, you think of the word confront. It's not a very casual word. It's when you say you're going to have to confront this. It's it's usually not attached to you're going to have to confront that you just want a million dollars. You're going to have to confront the fact that you're the CEO. You say, because congratulations to the CEO. Then you have to confront 
the new reality that you're in. It's a, it's a challenge word. Do you feel that executives today, um, especially in the North American market, because it's evolved so radically um, swiftly over the last five or ten years, do you feel that executives are having a hard time confronting uh, the reality of today, but also the reality of what's happening with millennials and technology and stuff that's, that's uh, going to be happening in, in the near future? Yeah, I, I think it's a mix. I think there are some organizations and industries that are uh, embracing it quite well. And I think there are other industries that are uh, actually an industry that I work with very, very closely, uh, the life sciences industry. Uh, they're, they're an example of an industry, quite frankly, that has rested on the laurels of a business model that has produced a lot of success. But then you also start to look at the retail industry and uh, the disruption that's been caused by uh, the Amazon phenomenon. And I think all of a sudden now the retail industry is starting to look very, 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 very different. Uh, and, it, you know, responding to a lot of the, the new trends in technology and the new innovations and the new, the new behaviors of consumers as well. So, I, so it's definitely mixed. I usually... You know, it, like anything else, necessity is the mother of invention, and uh, I think it's hit other. In, I think the the importance of millennials and new technologies has also hit, um, you know, the North American economy or the North American industry set, also in an uneven way. It's not the same as you go from one industry to the next. You know, there's there's a real shift in consumer morality, in the sense that. You know, the consumer these days, hey, I got teenagers, and they go, oh, yeah, we went to this store and that store. We tried on all the shoes, and then uh, I ordered those shoes online because I could get them X amount cheaper. Now, if I was a store owner, I was saying, well, those kids are stealing from me. That's immoral. I said, no, it's just the way that they utilize the resources that are available to them. Now, if your store is unable to understand that and capture them uh, and, and have an online experience that will drive people to, to go to your store, experience your store, experience the products, and yet uh, be able to buy the product uh, online uh, and get a great deal is tough. And I, I know Amazon right now is actually talking about uh, starting some brick-and-mortar stores where you go in and they have thousands of items that you can actually physically touch and check out before making your decision to buy on Amazon. So at the end of the day, you know, you're looking at what Amazon's doing is they're evolving backwards to meet the consumer halfway and other companies that are uh, stuck in the old style of retail are either even evolving forward or, or, or shifting or going out of business. It's a very tough environment to be in right now. Right. But, but I think the point you made at the beginning is very important, is that uh, for a retailer to be successful, one, they have to have an online presence, obviously, uh, in addition to brick-and-mortar stores. And secondly, they have to take a very different attitude towards how they actually measure the performance of the brick-and-mortar store. They almost have to look at it as, in some ways, as a loss leader for consumers who want to have a... Um, you know, a, a very close-up, intimate experience with the product they're buying before they buy it. You know, for example, if you pick something expensive like, uh, oh, I don't know, a TV. Yeah, you want to go to a store and actually, you know, look at the TV and 
understand how the quality of the picture and understand what they mean by this, that, and the other thing and have somebody explain it to you. But, you know, the notion of saying, okay, thank you very much and then going back home and shopping for the best price and getting it in the best place, you know, that, that I think is the way of the world. So that, that certainly is a dramatic change in the business model. And I think what Amazon's doing is obviously very, very smart. They've, they've mastered the web presence, uh, but they also realize for some of the things they sell, uh, web presence is probably not enough. You may be the, the the leader of the pack for so many months because it used to be that you know you could do something and you'd have years to do it, but these days you've only got months. Everything kind of settles down after a couple of a couple of years, right? And then suddenly, who's going to do the new reality spike? Hey, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about you know your your, your history. Like you've been a, a business consultant forever. Uh, <laughs> you've you've seen thousands and thousands and thousands of businesses. And then when you were writing the book, what was your aha moment when you're saying, wow, what this character is experiencing is such a truism. This is, this is critically important. For me, the big aha moment was when I started to think about the challenges in business uh, and what leaders do in business. And I started to characterize the traits that were you know, less desirable, whether it be the megalomaniac justification of wrong or the unwillingness to empower or some of the others, I said to myself, wow, you know, the, the parallels in politics are striking. And when you think of some of the leaders we've seen over the years who have done some of the most horrific things, I thought that some of the uh, attributes that I was talking about in business had a lot of applicability to describing, uh, you know, political leaders in real life. Like, for example, um, you know, the megalomaniac justification of wrong. I think what that's all about is is that when your when your power is being threatened, and you have such a strong sense of self for your power, that anything that you can do to preserve your power, uh, you rationalize. I mean, you rationalize firing all these people. You rationalize uh, making moves internally to get people out of your way who might be a threat to you. Uh, and unfortunately, we've seen that in real life. Uh, you know, whether it be, you know, really what motivates a leader to, of, a, of a country to say, uh, yeah, we're going to start a genocide or we're going to gas our own people or what have you. I mean, whatever it is. I mean, I think that the parallels to what I was talking about in business are even more profound in the political world. And it's very interesting. Time goes on after I write the book, and here we are you know, in the United States with uh, uh, a Republican nominee, quite frankly, who uh, has a lot of the traits that I'm talking about in the book. And you know, it's, I find it very interesting that while we're talking about it in other ways like temperament and things like that, uh, uh, it, it's really, it, we're not talking about it at the right level. Uh, that uh, to, whether, and this goes beyond party or policy. I mean, to, to have an individual who's not value-centered, uh, to have an individual who has such a narcissistic sense of self is, I think, very dangerous. And I think the precedents in history are there. And it's, uh, I, I saw, so for me, that was a major aha moment uh, as I was writing the book that only got stronger after I published the book and watched what unfolded in the U.S. election. 
Wow. Now, you've got two main characters in this book. They uh, have a slightly different path. And this is a totally unfair question. Which character do you relate to the most? I relate more to Mitch Howard because I can see how somebody in a very new type of position, meaning he ascends to being a leader and he is trying to build a startup organization. I can see how that, Chris, creates uh, just a great deal of conflict in terms of what he's going through as a leader, uh, in terms of being a leader of a company, also in terms of what he had to do to um, uh, deal with the fact that he's establishing a brand, uh, starting a company from scratch. That complexity, I, I thought, was uh, something that I related more to because I could intellectualize it and almost understand it. Uh, you know, Fallon and later Jonas Shaw on the other side of the book, um, they were just devious and they were they were just you know bad actors um, and did not have you know any any excuse other than avarice for where they were going in terms of what they were trying to achieve. Mm. You used an interesting word here: ascend into a position um, compared to placed, and uh, it goes back to when you're building an organization, you have. Um, you have a CEO in position that helps grow the company. They're a growing style CEO. And then the company becomes successful and then it kind of matures a little bit. And that CEO should be removed and brought into a different type, more of a uh, an efficiency style CEO. Um, that's a very, very difficult shift for a company to survive. Uh, a lot of times they're forced into that because the company is actually struggling with a growth CEO compared to an efficiency CEO. Uh, you look at Apple right now, it, it's, it's a big paradigm shift that their, uh, their culture, I mean, the, the culture of the, the people that buy the product is really upset right now um, because they want the superstar approach. But that's not what this company needs. And a lot of time, the consumer gets in the way of a company being able to do the right thing or grow in the right direction or have the right type of CEO. Um, so I wanted to ask you, do you think that's a fundamental problem that businesses have, you know, purely on, on uh, coming in as a manager consultant, is understanding where the company is in its growth or in its life and being able to talk to people as well, you know, the reason that we're struggling is your C-suite is the wrong type of C-suite or the morality of the C-suite or the goals of the C-suite are not in conjunction with the uh, position your company is in or, or, or the stage of its life that the company's in. Oh, definitely. And it, it, I think it matters um, uh, at various points of a business's life cycle. I mean, you mentioned one example where you have something like in the case of Apple where, you know, uh, it's a famous story. I mean, it, you had a great innovator, a great um, spokesperson for the company, a great uh, a thinker, um, and he got the company going. As it grew, it needed a more traditional business discipline and structure so that it could take the next step to the level of growth, and it did. And then all of a sudden, uh, they they reached an innovation rut and they needed to bring them back, and and I think also what businesses go through is they could be very effective. Uh, you could have an efficiency C-suite 
that does a wonderful job of growing the company, uh, growing profits, driving returns to shareholders. And then all of a sudden the market can go through a dramatic shift. Take the retail industry. I mean, I, I, I would assume that uh, when Amazon established what they established, that there were many retailers across North America and the world where fundamentally they realized that they didn't have the right team to kind of address this change in, in business trend and, and position their own organizations to succeed in it. I, I think that that is uh, something that I think you know occurs at various stages throughout the business life cycle as a result of what goes on in the market and what goes on when uh, the innovation you see across a variety of industries. In the back of the book, you have the wrap-up, and that's really where the the knowledge or, or, or where you step back into your role as, as a business consultant. I'm sure there's tons of things that you think are important, but what do you think is the most important lesson that you're trying to get across based on these two characters living their life and, and growing within this business? I, I think the most important lesson, and it played out in some degree in the story, is that uh, you need to establish core values for yourself as well as your organization. And you need to have the discipline to kind of stick with them in good times and in bad. And I think if, if you do a good job of sticking to those values, uh, it's going to carry you through the tough times. I mean, every business at some point is going to face a challenging period. Uh, and for reasons that many of them can't predict. But I think it's the, the ones where they start to stray from their value set in terms of how they behave, how they interact with each other, uh, how they value honesty and transparency. Those are the ones that are usually kind of headed for demise. That would be the, the one lesson that I'd probably want to leave the reader with uh, as a result of uh, my experience here. Do you think that um, that's a fundamental thing that a lot of uh, organizations and companies are struggling with right now, that they've kind of, they don't have that moral compass or they do have the moral compass, but they've forgotten where they put it? Well, I, I think we see it time and time again. Um, I think that, um, you know, it's interesting. I've been watching Wall Street for years and, uh, you know, Wall Street makes uh, leadership decisions based on uh, where this guy has been before and they, they hardly talk to him and then they put him in the CEO spot. And I, I, I often scratch my head and I wonder, okay, yeah, the guy has a, a reputation of doing well there, but um, how well how, how well are they getting to know this person that they are putting, putting in charge? And, and if you look at a lot of the challenges we've had on Wall Street, um, you know, you kind of stop and say, you know, holy cow. And um, so, so clearly th there are a slew of examples where the moral compass has been lost. However, I think as a result of the, quite frankly, the regulatory scrutiny and what's gone on in the, uh, with these cases, you know, in terms of the press, I think more and more organizations are, are, are doing a better job of having their own independent forces, you know, to try to regulate and police the organization to ensure uh, that some of the activity that can lead them down the wrong path doesn't occur. Now, can it still occur? Sure. Is it harder? Yes. Uh, so um, I think we're moving in the right direction as a as a society and in, in the way we, we view this issue, but uh, it's certainly still possible. 
do you think that companies can self-regulate themselves in, in the sense that if part of the new moral positioning of organizations is that, you know, this is our position as a business, but this is also our position on an ethical sense. And as the CEO, you almost have a, a, a business consultant that comes in and that's all they talk about is the moral side of things. It's almost like having a business priest. I think that's the role of independent boards. You know, when the board is independent, uh, I, I, I really believe that that's um, an advantage. And I think we've seen recently, I'll just a couple of examples that are known to many of, uh, of your uh, listeners if you look at what goes on in the sports world, uh, if you think about uh, what happened in uh, in baseball uh, with the steroids issues, and if you think about football and the uh, concussion issues, those are organizations that are not necessarily run by independent boards. They're run by uh, a group of the owners whose uh, incentives are, uh, are, are certainly clear for maximizing revenue and profits, not necessarily doing uh, what's right ethically uh, for the good of the game as well as the public that it serves. So that's, to me, it's the independent board that's a major element. The other thing that I think is important is the the regulations, you know, do call for external review. I mean, you know, whether it be a public auditor or or other um, Groups that are required for public companies to um, have, uh, you know, their their operations and processes and procedures reviewed by. I think those organizations uh, also play a major role. But I do think that they a company can self-regulate if they uh, uh, if they pay, you know, if they put a lot of discipline and and uh, effort into the role of independent boards and the companies that they they call on. Yeah, I think also that you know the the concept of win at all costs is uh, actually a, a, a losing strategy these days. I mean, it may have worked in the past because it's it's all about growth and whatever. But um, we're in a world where sustainability is becoming way more important than massive returns. And you look at shareholders now, and you go to a shareholder and say, "Okay, so would you like to make huge dividends for the next twenty years, or would you like to have the?" world that you're living in uh, survivable for your for your sons and daughters what is more important and and those are type of moral questions that people have to ask themselves these days i mean it's that sounds pretty doom and gloom but really guys it, it's we're not in a sustainable trajectory and uh countries like united states that are you know, perceived as as leaders uh, economically uh, and in business, and and their prows, and they kind of say, no, this is the new way, and everybody comes, okay, the American dream is now this direction, let's follow it. Uh, they have a tremendous uh, moral responsibility because they're in that position. You know, absolutely, and and I think it's those organizations that are thinking about the long term. I mean, the true long term that will you know obviously make those decisions in a balanced way. I mean, clearly, they have an obligation to their shareholders to make money, but they also have to do it in a way that is um, responsible and positions themselves for prosperity down the line. So, you know, clearly, uh, if they take a long-term view, I think that's uh, that's probably the right way to go. Do you think, and this is kind of way out of left field, do you think that part of the problem is that the people that are investing in the company are investing it to make money? 
I mean, that's an insane thing because that's why you would invest. But why cannot you, as as shareholders, come together in a general meeting and say, you know what, we don't like the direction this company is going, and we don't, we're not as concerned about making as much money. We're way more concerned about the long-lasting effects of this company. There are many organizations like that, and you know clearly that's why uh, a lot of these organizations um, uh, spend a lot of time lobbying politicians. Uh, so they can get the right policy, so they can do whatever they want to do, whether it be to to mine coal or to do whatever else that you know, or drill for oil, or whatever it is. So clearly, there's um, a lot of that going on, and um, in the extreme cases like oil drilling and, and coal, I mean, obviously, you see governments getting very actively involved to try to ensure that it doesn't go out of hand. But again, I would say. You know, one of the one of the roles of independent boards is to not uh, have a member of the board of directors be so internally vested in the organization, meaning owning a lot of stock. That's why a lot of uh, directors' compensation occurs in cash, uh, in addition to you know some stock, but a lot of it is cash. And it, it's really to ensure that the directors can make the best independent decisions for the organization for the long term. So I would say it's also uh, it falls on the doorstep of the boards of directors around uh, you know for all these publicly held companies. What's uh, one thing that uh, our listening audience can do other than buy your book of course um, to move their business in in uh, the right direction? I think give the the topic of leadership a lot of thought. I mean I think that um, a leader is a person and a person has attributes and I think you want to make sure that the leaders you surround yourself with are people that you know uh, you know you can trust you know will have are value driven will be consistent in how they apply those values because I think we get a chance to choose our leaders here in North America for, for by and large which is good whether it be a business whether it be in the community whether it be politically uh, just keep those those things in mind as things that are very important for the long haul as you make some of those choices the Peril of Thyself, The Spectacular Demise of Two Firms. I've been chatting with Mark about it, and uh, definitely a book well worth picking up and reading. Uh, you can do what we talked about. You can jump to the back and, and, and read the nugget, or you can get in and entertain yourself, and then get into the nugget and maybe reread some sections. But it's it's definitely a book to read, and then instead of closing it, putting it on your shelf, you know, sit down, have a coffee, and think about it. Maybe bring it to work and give it to another coworker and discuss it. it. It's definitely a book of the month for a business to consider. So, Mark, thanks for coming on the show. It was amazing. Bob, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to the show. And don't forget to subscribe and rate us on iTunes. Like us at Facebook forward slash Business Book Talk. Follow the host on Twitter at Bob Garlic. Visit the website businessbooktalk.com for show notes and lots of other great interviews. See you next week.